Present in English, aber ich wollte unbedingt einen, einen ganz netten Gruß ausrichten, weil Deutschland ist ein Land, was nicht auf meiner Liste fehlt, weil ich zufällig auf der Grundschule war. So, ich werde immer sehr nostalgisch, wenn ich in Hamburg auftrete. Das kommt ja sowieso nicht so häufig vor. So, thank you everyone. Um, so, let's talk about the war. For talent, I've always been on the move, so I didn't get to spend as much time in Germany as I would have liked, but, uh, but I do feel at home. And I guess the question is, where do you feel at home? Where will be the home for about 8 billion people in the world in the years ahead? Can you really take for granted that where you are or where other people are is where they will be? So I set out, I suppose uh, there's no secret since you have the book in your bag, you'll, you'll see what my prognosis is, but I'll also show it to you here with a bit of a story, a bit of a narrative around uh, why I started to undertake this in investigation because I wanted to answer the question, if we look backwards from the year 2050, where will we be? It's not that far away, actually. If you have children, you might be wondering, where will you go visit them, right, a couple of decades uh, from now? And I thought it would be a relatively straightforward answer, but it turned out to be a very meandering path. And I came to the conclusion that humanity is in many ways returning to its nomadic roots. So with that, let me start the story. And it's really a, a collection of megatrends that fit together that collide with each other, demographics, technology, politics, climate change. When we have conversations like this, you could have a neat and orderly separation between these topics. In the real world, you don't get to pick your crisis, right? Do you remember actually during the early days of the pandemic when industrial activity stopped in the lockdown? One of the stories in the news was Look at the people in northern India. In the, they have not seen the Himalayan mountains for 50 years because of all of the pollution. And suddenly the pollution cleared up. And these people who lived on the base of the most spectacular mountains on earth, they could finally see those mountains. And people said, oh, maybe this is the solution to climate change. Let's just shut down industrial activity uh, forever. But of course, climate change didn't go away. We had COVID, we had economic crisis, and climate change, not to mention con states continuing to collapse all at the same time. You don't get to pick your crisis. So we're going to talk about the megatrends maybe individually. The truth is they all fit together. And what all of them do individually and collectively is to push us. We push nature, nature pushes back. So let's start with demographics. This is the first point I wanted to make. Peak humanity is one of the, the most important phrases that I developed. I realized that whereas 25 years ago, people still predicted that the world population could rise to 13, 14, 15 billion people. And so we worried about a Malthusian crisis of resource stress and, and uh, overpopulation. That's not what we believe anymore, right? In fact, global fertility began to decline in the 1970s, and then we have had two successive baby busts, one after the other. One was the financial crisis of 2008. Because of economic insecurity, fertility went down. And now we have COVID, the COVID baby bust, and you've probably been reading about this. The number, the, the, the reduced number of childbirths in a large country like America, has is is been estimated at 500,000 fewer children 
that then would have been expected to be born. Now, if you go back to 2008, it's interesting because already in 2009, 2010, the baby bust of the financial crisis in just one country in America was so severe that it was predicted with confidence that that means that in the year 2026, many universities would shut down and go bankrupt. Why? Because, of course, it's 18 years later. So you can take a long-term view and understand what the consequences of demographics are. Now, that was just one country. Now we're talking about the whole human species, right? Our number is basically about to plateau. And in many countries, this being one of them, though it's certainly much worse in Japan or in Russia and in Spain and Italy, it already feels that way. Right? You've already, you, you have sub-replacement fertility or barely replacement fertility. So the bottom line is that we're living through a moment that you know, we really didn't expect even as recently as 20 years ago. And this has enormous implications for how we think about how we spread ourselves around the world because an empty country isn't a country at all. Right? In fact, it's not even fiscally viable. I actually can think of countries that I think will have to merge together with their neighbors because they will have no money, because they will have no people, because there's no one paying taxes. That's happening around the corner a lot faster than you think. There are many, many implications for this, but the, the most important one that I want to talk about is the war for talent, because today our societies, especially many Western societies, are dominated by this notion of populism, xenophobia, protectionism, walls, borders, but in fact, once you're running out of young people, you're running out of taxpayers, you don't have uh, construction workers, you don't have nannies, you don't have teachers, these kinds of things, you realize, uh-oh, we need to recruit as many young people as possible. And that's actually what's happening in many countries. So the question is not whether there will be a war for young talent. The only question is if your country has figured it out yet and has started to act on it. That's the only question. So another striking fact about the, the demographic structure of the world is that you know, for the last 100 years, starting in 19, from 1920 to about 2000, over an 80-year period, the world population quadrupled right, from 2 billion to 8 billion people. And so, of course, every generation gave birth to a larger generation. But this is where you see the baby bus kicking in, that little dashed line. So Generation Z. Today's, uh, you know, 10-year-olds, teens, tweens, um, they're the largest generation that the human species has ever produced and will ever produce. Because of the baby bus, Generation Alpha, who are today's babies, today's toddlers, and even unborn until the year 2025, Generation Alpha goes till 2025, will probably be smaller. We'll know. We can, we can come back together in January 2026, and we'll know the exact number. I predict the number will be smaller, right? So we are actually starting to decline. Now, something very interesting happens at this point. It's kind of like science fiction, because if we're accustomed to a world where each generation gives birth to a larger generation, but that, that stops happening, it means that the present youth today, you know, all of you, if you're 40 or younger, you still count in the United Nations definition of kind of you know, young, able-bodied people, right? So the youth of today are also the future because there's no one coming after you. So the present is the future, right? It's like very sci-fi. If there's no children, then the present is, remains the present 
if you will. So the present is the future. That's the phrase I want you to realize. That's not something that we know how to deal with because it hap hasn't happened since the Black Death, right, 700 years ago. But we don't exactly have lots of good data uh, and didn't have demographic forecasting in the 13th century. So let's start to think about that world in which the present is the future. That means we don't just talk about young people. What are we going to do for them? What do we sell them, right? Or how do we market to them? They are the central protagonists of our future, right? The story or the vision, the goal that we need to share is how do we improve the lives and maximize the survival rate of all the young people of the world? That may even mean relocating them to places where they can have a better life. Because if we sacrifice our young people, if we don't give them a good life, then our species is not going to regenerate. Now, you may not want it to. I noticed some kindergartners having their, their, their climate strike. And I know that you know, for, for young people, there's this notion that uh, you know, having children is, is, is sort of bad. And quite frankly, a leveling of the world population is a good thing from a climate standpoint. But you actually need to maintain certain generational balances. It's not really just one absolute number, like 9 billion bad, 5 billion good, right? That's not how it works. You need to have a certain amount of reproduction globally and geographically and have certain balances between old and young in societies in order to, have, in order to manage the population, right? Otherwise, you actually run the risk of you know, extinction but you know, with climate change, could even make it worse. So it has to be managed well. And I don't think that right now we have a strategy. So what are the ways in which we would seek to preserve or maximize you know, the remaining human population and do the best that we can for today's global youth who represent you know, half of the global population today? So well, here we are. This is us. Every human being is a pixel on this map. All 8 billion of us are a pixel. So what about climate change, as was mentioned? What happens? Have a close look at this map. So what did you just see? What you saw was, let me see if I can go backwards, right? Go back to where we were a second ago. Oh, it doesn't go backwards, never mind. But what you saw was, oh, it is going backwards, how nice. This is where we are right now, okay? So fixate on the black areas. Now look again, this is what climate change is doing according to NASA, right, the IPCC. Um, the, the red zones are the places that are becoming less suitable for human habitation. The green zones are becoming more livable, right? Now remember, which places are all the people right now as we speak? Does the laser pointer work even? Not quite, well, the red, red zones. Which are the countries where the populations are declining the fastest? The green zones. So in other words, talk about, I mean, I think of all, we, maybe we overuse the word irony in this world, but I can't think of a bigger irony in our, on our planet than the fact that the resources are in places where there's no people, and all the people are in places that are becoming unlivable, while our population is plateauing and even declining, and we ask ourselves, you know, what's our future? Well, here you have it, right? Not a good situation. So my work is about trying to figure out how do you rectify 
these geographical imbalances. The geography of resources, the geography of people, the geography of industry, the geography of borders are completely misaligned. And I have some news for you. No United Nations, no alien species is going to come and fix this for us. It's going to tell us how to do it. Right? Do we untangle this situation? Do we come up with a better distribution of the human species on the planet or not? Right? It's up to us. So we have the demographic imbalances. We have the political upheavals that haven't stopped. Syria five years ago, Afghanistan last week, and on and on it goes. The economic dislocation, financial crises, as I mentioned before, technological disruptions, labor automation, artificial intelligence. When your factory that you work in is closed down, you move to live somewhere more affordable. Or when you have remote work, you say, oh, well, I don't have to live in Hamburg at all. I'll go move to Bali, right? But technology plays a role in where we live. And of course, climate change multiplied by all of the infrastructure and connectivity that we've built. I forecast that coming out of this pandemic, there will be more human mobility, right? People responding, reacting, or maybe forecasting where stable places are and moving and relocating to them. But that's not what the present patterns of human migration look like. Right now, we largely remain within certain regions. So for example, the largest stock of people living outside of their country of birth is actually in the former Soviet Union, which collapsed exactly 30 years ago in 1991. So the border crossing and resettlement is one, that's one large area. Africans within Africa, Asians within Asia, Europeans within Europe, uh, Latin Americans in North America, those are the regional patterns. But remember, go back to the climate map. You know, it's no longer a stable world with stable patterns. So in, 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 uh, what you'll see in the book is that I kind of look at entirely new axes of migration. Right? You know, millions and millions of South Asians who may relocate to Kazakhstan and Russia. You know, lots of East and South Asians who may wind up here in Europe. People like me when I was a kid, except when I was a kid uh, here in Schleswig-Holstein, there were, there were no other you know, ethnic Indians around, at least not that I found. Whereas today, you know, if you look around in Germany, there's, there's, uh, there's Indians and Vietnamese and Chinese all over the place. And you wouldn't have thought that in the year 1995, but it just sort of happened. It turns out that there's, a, that there's 4 million Asians right now living in Western Europe, excluding the, the UK. But that number could be 20, 25, 30 million. And I tell some stories about that uh, in the book. I, I went to SAP headquarters. So SAP is a German company. It's Europe's largest software company and um, outside of Frankfurt. And I was really surprised that, you know, it kind of reminded me of Cisco in California, tech campus packed with Indians. I was like, how did you get here? You know, and, uh, and but, but the question you have to ask is, what would SAP be? This is, again, you know, one of your most important companies, one of Europe's most important companies. Would it actually be what it is, capable of doing what it does? have the size that it has and the market share that it has and the presence that it has. If it weren't for all the Indians that you imported here, physically here, they're not outsourced. They're not sitting in Bangalore in a call center. They live here, right? And that's, that's happening. This, so we have these gradual and sudden new patterns of migration that are actually already happening. And that, that's important because we have to remember that we talk about mass migration as if it's never happened before. 
right? It's like, oh my God, I'm so scared of mass migration. Well, tell me what is human history of the last 300 years, if not mass migrations? You know, everyone thinks immediately this is something so scary, but literally it's maybe one of the things that we actually do well, right? America wouldn't be America if not for centuries of gigantic large-scale migrations. You've had in Europe large-scale migrations of people from, uh, from Turkey, of course, and other countries. So actually, the world has already been characterized by this, and it's happened mostly gradually, mostly peacefully, mostly mutually beneficially. Yes, of course, there have been wars and genocides, right? But you add up the numbers of what causes people to move, and it's mostly peaceful, mutually beneficial economic migration. Let's always remember that in the end, it has been win-win for centuries. That's a fact. It's a not debatable fact. And, it can, and we can, it can continue to be that way if we do it right. Now, Europe is on the front lines here. Uh, I think you know this, but just show you, show you some of the data, right? You've built the most um, you know, highly respected and, and stable political systems and most generous welfare states in the world next to Japan, right? Except it's really expensive, as you probably know, right? And to maintain it, you need taxpayers. You need young people. Now, it's one thing if America says, oh, you know, the social security system is uh, getting pricey. You know, we may need to raise taxes a little bit, you know, bring, in, bring in more people. That's fine, because America can do that, right? It's a lot, lot easier. They have been doing it. But here in Europe, you're a bit more nervous about it, except the fiscal challenge is way bigger because the majority of the world's outstanding pension obligations are here because you actually have the generous welfare state and you are aging faster and your fertility is lower. So your problems are a lot bigger, a lot, lot bigger, uh, at least on, on paper. And quite frankly, in reality too, because you have you know, t libraries that close, you have, um, you know, shortages of workers. You could have far more dynamic, far more productive economies than you have, and without necessarily being less sustainable if you had more people. But that's a choice that you have to make, so it's something that's worth debating. So the war for talent is what is playing out in a big way over youth as countries realize that they, they need it. Now, I won't go into every detail here, but the, the phrase war for talent used to have a different meaning. It used to be very boring. The war for talent used to mean, does London get the best banker or does New York get the best banker? That's the origin of the phrase. It's got a much more, there's a lot more at stake today than just, you know, where does a hedge fund trader live, right? Now we're talking about, again, the entire youth population of our species and trying to figure out where can they be most useful, right? What societies need young people and how can they be peacefully, integrated and assimilated so that they can help us uh, you know, restore our, uh, or, or rebuild or, or retrofit our economies for the future. And it's funny, you know, if you remember before the pandemic, I, I suppose no one would know how many countries had nomad visas, you know, like Estonia, right? Come, live here, you know, stay as long as you like, just be a digital nomad. About two countries in the world had those visa schemes. Today, it's like 70 countries, right? Because what happened during the pandemic, of course, was that there was a lockdown, travel froze, and suddenly all these countries didn't have tourists, they didn't have um, business travelers, no conferences, conventions, events, things like this. And they said, oh my God, we need people. 
you really miss people when they're gone, right? And the entire country is at this realization, oh, we really miss people. What was the phrase that dominated the tourism industry in the year 2019? Here's another big irony. Do you remember? It was toxic tourism, right? Barcelona, Venice, all saying, too many tourists, we have to stop all the tourists, it's just too good. Paris saying, we have to, you know, Parisians saying, stop all the tourists, you know, this city belongs to us. And then now, two years later, around the world, it's a war for tourists. Please come, don't go there, come here, right? Stay in our, our hotels are empty, all of our businesses have gone bankrupt, and so forth. So you miss people when they're gone. That applies to a city or a hotel, and it applies to entire countries. Don't make the mistake of waiting until the young talent have decided to go to a friendlier country and have not chosen your country and your economy, your society, your competitiveness, your dynamism suffer. Because entire countries are making that mistake. An entire country like Russia is making that mistake. Entire country like Japan. Almost all Eastern European countries have made that mistake. No one wants to go to Viktor Orban's Hungary, right? as you can imagine, um, given his rhetoric, right? So don't make the mistake. And in that sense, again, I'm not lecturing to Germany because Germany has done so much right. Germany is an incredible role model in so many ways that I could go on and on. I think this afternoon when we have a, you know, a conversation, we can, we can talk in more detail about it, but I want to talk about some of the global things. It begins with students, right? Who has an educational system that is attracting young people and teaching them the skills for the 21st century and doing it in an affordable way. And what you see is the competition's getting super intense. It used to be that America just got, you know, all the smart kids, right? And, and, and England got some also. Uh, but now what's happening in Europe and elsewhere, even in Japan, they're saying, we'll start teaching English. Everything's in English now. I have German friends in Berlin who teach at the Humboldt who are like Germans born in Germany and they still live in Germany and they're teaching English, right? because this is how you get young people to show up. So entire countries are doing that. Of course, Sweden was doing it for a long time, but it's happening here now. That's, that's, another, that's one example. Um, expats, right, nomad visas. So countries are slashing taxes. No taxes for nomad workers. Again, come stay as long as you like. We'll even you know, co-finance your business, give you seed capital, you know, bring 10 of your colleagues, no problem, right? And so in these, these surveys that, that are done all the time, you see an intense competition to provide affordable, reliable access to a good, livable country. Very clear points-based migration systems. This is one thing that Germany could do a, a little bit better. Canada is very good at this. Um, you, know, you just log in, say, this is how old I am, this is what I studied, this is what I want to do, this is you know, whatever, and you get points. And it's totally ageist, right? So I'm 44 with a PhD. When I apply to Canada, I get like five points. If you're a Brazilian, you're 20 years old and have not gone to university, you get like 20 points, right? So again, a really smart country, Canada, is saying young, young, young. We want young people here. That's the future. Incredibly smart. So learn from all these examples. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Um, so let me just wrap up. Uh, we'll talk about scenarios. So. I think we have, to, we, we have to have a collective attitude about this, right? Every, everything in our conversations about migration is about my country, my culture, you know, my election, um, you know, um, uh, my language, and this kind of thing. Uh, but that's, you know, that, that kind of logic, it doesn't work when you're trying to solve climate change. 
It certainly doesn't work when you're trying to manage global demographics and preserve your species collectively, right? So I hope that you know, we can all learn to think a bit more broadly. And, and I would say if I could distill the agenda, the message, the, the vision down to just a couple of sentences, we need to move people to where resources are, move technologies to where people are. When I say move, fundamentally, in this book, it's not just about people. It's the mobility of everything. And the mobility of everything, the mobility of goods, production, the mobility of capital, the mobility of technology and ideas, all of that mobility is necessary to enable us as people to be in the right place at the right time to circulate. And of course, to think beyond national sovereignty and borders. The system that we've had for centuries is somewhat antiquated. Now, we will always have sovereignty and borders. That's fine. Right? But it's, do we also transcend them when we need to? That's, that's, that's critical. And think more in terms of stewardship and common governance. And again, it's happening place to place, but not collectively. And to think about a civilization 3.0. Civilization 1.0 is actually when we were nomadic and uh, uh, for, for hundreds of thousands of years. In civilization 2.0, we became industrial and sedentary. And what I believe civilization 3.0 will be mobile, people will move, and we will have more sustainable circular economies. So mobile and circular are the kind of two pillars of what I think our future model of civilization needs to be like. But to get there, we have to move to it. Thank you very much. Dankeschön.